This morning's reading comes from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. This is the word of the Lord. Would you all please pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for the gift that your word is, and we pray that in this time you would meet us through the power of your word. We invite your spirit here into this place, Lord. Illumine our hearts. Um, open up our minds to hear a truth uh, that is embedded deeply in this text about who you are, Lord, and how you've met us in our own lives with your gospel. We pray that you would be in this place together in Jesus' name. Amen. If you uh, aren't familiar with me, my name is Josiah, and I normally do the announcements in this service, and I asked Bob if I could have the Sunday off from doing announcements, and he said, sure, you can preach in both services. So uh, I guess I got the short end of the stick on that one. Um, just kidding. I always enjoy speaking in the morning services, and I've been particularly looking forward to this message. I've really enjoyed the sermon series we've been going through these past few months, where we've kind of done these one-sermon snapshots on a book of the Bible. And something that is stick, that's really stuck out to me in particular is knowing the importance of context. Who's the author? Who's the recipient of the letter um, in the case of the book of James? What is the occasion the letter is written to address? What's the relationship between those parties of the author and the recipient? And I think that something that has been on my mind a lot is how important it is to know the context if we're going to understand correctly the intended message of the writer. And I want to share with you a quick story from my own life that illustrates this point really well. So my wife, Brittany, over here and I, we've been married about seven years, and we began dating when we were juniors in college, and I remember a time about two months before we were engaged, my senior year of college, where it was right after Christmas, and we used to go for these long walks on the campus of Grove City College, where we both went, and after one of these walks, I was just a, a young man in love. Love makes people do crazy, crazy things, right? And uh, I was certainly not immune to that. And so immediately after our walk, I went up to my dorm room and started composing a love email. How romantic. A love email. Uh, and in this email, I just said, hey, I want you to know how much I value our time together. Whenever I'm not with you, I just look forward to being with you. I can't wait for what the future holds for us. And uh, every minute I get with you is the best minute of my day. 
and I love kissing you, you taste like candy canes. And uh, I know those are all really normal things to, to write in a love email. And uh, so I click send. I don't know if any of you share in this same struggle, but I have this really bad problem of not proofreading emails until they're in my sent folder. And so I, I clicked on my sent folder, I opened up the email, and at the top of the email in the two box is not my wife's name, Brittany Moore, but the first person who was under the letter M in the last names category, which also happened to be the only other girl at Grove City College who I ever dated previous to my wife, who had broken up with me about a year before I sent this email. And so uh, that was one of the worst moments of my existence. I just, I just was thinking, is there any way I'm dreaming and this isn't happening? And so I immediately clicked a reply to that email and said, hey, I am so sorry. I meant to send that to Brittany. I, uh, I'm really embarrassed. I hope you won't mention this to the sorority of 60 women that you're a part of. And uh, she immediately replied, yeah, I, I, I recognize that it probably wasn't for me. And uh, most, most uh, the thing that let me know that the most was that you have no idea what it's like to kiss me. Have a great year. And I was like... I was like, well, that could have been a lot worse. And uh, the reason I tell that story is to illustrate the point that if you get one of those context variables wrong, the author, the writer, uh, the recipient, their relationship, you mix those variables up and you have a pretty high chance that your intended message of the letter is going to be misunderstood. And boy, I sure sabotaged myself on that one, didn't I? <sighs> So the book of James, that's where we're going today. And the reason I share that story is that the book of James is a book of the Bible that is very commonly misunderstood. Martin Luther, the famous Reformation theologian, wrote a preface to the New Testament. And in this preface, he assigned a level of doctrinal value based on his opinion of where that letter laid in relation to the rest of the New Testament. And he wrote in that preface, St. John's Gospel and his first epistle... St. Paul's epistles, especially those to the Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and St. Peter's epistle, these are the books which show to thee Christ and teach everything that is necessary and blessed for thee to know, even if you were never to see or hear any other book of doctrine. And so he's saying these books are where the gospel gold is at, justification by grace through faith in Christ. That's at the fore of what these books cover. But then he goes on to tell the readers not where to not bother wasting any of their time. So let's see what he says about that. Therefore, St. James' epistle is a perfect straw epistle compared with them, for it has nothing of an evangelic kind. So don't bother with the book of James. It doesn't lift up Christ. Let's pray. I don't want to waste your guys' time. Um, obviously, that's not what I believe. These are some harsh words from Luther, huh? And I feel like his view represents a strong misunderstanding of the book of James, and I don't think it's one that we are immune to today entirely. And so I have to give credit where it's due. Luther is a hero of the faith, and I look up to him immensely, but I really believe he's off on this one. And I hope by the end of this message, you'll see why. Um, but right up front, I have to say, on one hand, Luther's kind of correct. The book of James is a lightweight when it comes to expounding on the doctrine of justification, this idea of we are saved 
by the grace of Christ, through faith alone. Uh, that's really not what the book of James is all about. And that theme is very much prominent in a lot of Paul's letters and in Peter and in the book of Romans. But does the absence of that theme make James an epistle of straw? I would say certainly not. Why is that? Because this just isn't the point of the book of James. Uh, justification isn't at the core of what this letter is about. And James is written for an entirely different purpose. And that purpose is one that's incredibly important for the recipients of his letter. And it's one that's incredibly important for the church today. And so to say that the book of James is a straw epistle is kind of like saying vegetables are a really poor food because they don't have as much protein as meat. Um, on one hand, you're right. But on the other hand, you're totally missing the point. Uh, the two were never meant to be the same. They're totally different by nature, but they're both really important in their own way. We need to recognize that. James is chock full of spiritual nutrients. Um, it's a book that is absolutely critical for us to understand and apply in the living out of our Christian lives today. And so I hope that uh, over these next few minutes, as we look at the book of James and his message, you will see the richness of this letter for our lives. And I want to spend a few minutes outlining that context that I mentioned earlier, because I believe that this context really helps us to see the intended message of the author, which makes it a whole lot meaning, more meaningful for us today. And so the first thing you need to know about James is he was actually the half-brother of Jesus, and he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem immediately following the resurrection. And if there's a part of you who's, who's wondering, hmm, how's he the half-brother of Jesus? How does that work out? Well, James was actually the son of Joseph and Mary, and Jesus was the son of Mary and God. So they had different dads. Um, that's why they're half-brothers. <laughs> Rob, I knew you'd like that one. And so James was raised Jewish, and the congregation he led would have shared that heritage. Uh, this letter, we need to know, isn't the only place we see James appear in Scripture. We read about him several times in Scripture, uh, most prominently in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 15, we see James as one of the key players in the Jerusalem Council. This was a time when the church was deciding whether or not to include Gentiles in the body of believers. And James led the apostles and the elders to see God's desire to graft them into the body, his covenant community, by faith. And so James was prominent throughout the book of Acts. And the occasion that this letter is written to address actually dates back to the book of Acts as well. You may remember the persecution of the church in Acts chapter 8, the stoning of Stephen, and then a persecution led by Paul and the officials of the Jewish church against the believers in the city of Jerusalem much of the church dispersed following that persecution, yet James, their pastor, stayed back in the city. And so this letter that we talk about this morning is actually James, the pastor, writing to his congregation about 10 years after they dispersed. They formed new churches. They've gone out into the, into the surrounding region and formed uh, new churches in the places they've landed. And so you know, uh, church planting is something that I really value. And a lot of people think about church planting strategies. This strategy we see here is certainly not a man-made church planting strategy. Um, persecution, dispersion as a result of that, and then God furthers the church. Pretty interesting. God has furthered his church in some interesting ways from the very beginning. But what we read in this letter uh, 
is James' correspondence with these members of his congregation about 10 years after they left. And so it had been a while, but James had a close bond with these people. They were people he knew and people that he really understood. He lived with them. He'd shepherded them. But even more than that, James knew how they understood the gospel when they first received it because he himself had received it in the same way. The news of justification by grace through faith in Christ would have hit these people hard when they first heard the news of Christ's resurrection and all that it meant for their relationship with God. It would have been an absolute paradigm shift to know that their relationship with God was dependent on his work on their behalf through Christ and not their obedience to the law. This would have changed everything for these people. And so the recipients of this letter would have heard James preach the good news week after week, year after year, for three or four years. And so James writes on this platform of relationship, this platform of teaching and leadership. But he also writes with great understanding and empathy because he knows where these people are at. He knows what they've been through. And he certainly has gone through many of those same struggles himself. And I want to take a few minutes now and outline for you two of the major intentions of James' letter that I see in this text. And the first is this, that James wrote with encouragement to these people in the midst of their circumstances. These people had left homes, they'd left history, many of them had left family behind. This was the place where their families had lived for generation after generation. And in addition to being oppressed by the Jewish officials, many of these people were very poor. They'd been through so much and they were deeply in need of encouragement. James writes to them in light of this need. I want to tell you another story. I remember a time in my life where my wife and I were going through something really difficult and I just couldn't see the truth in myself. Um, pardon me, I couldn't see the truth myself and I needed community to come around me and encourage me. And so I went to a really close friend of mine and I let him know what I was struggling with and I said, I know what is true in my head, but for some reason it's not in my heart and I just need to hear someone else tell me that God is over this situation and that he has our good in mind, even if I can't see it right now. And he said to me, Josiah, I know that what you're going through is hard, but listen to me, be encouraged. And I thought, be encouraged. That's it? That's all you got? Be encouraged? Like, I wanted something with a little more weight to it. Something with a little more substance. Like, here I am laying myself out there, expressing my need for him to speak some truth into my life. And, you know, maybe I was expecting a little too much. But all he had was be encouraged. Uh, isn't it true that when we find ourselves in that place of desperation, we need words with weight. We need words of truth to give us hope. And James totally gets this need. I want you to listen to his words in chapter 1 to his congregation in the midst of their circumstances. He says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That is some encouragement of substance. It may not have been what they expected to hear, but those words have weight. Those were words of truth. He's saying, I know things are hard, but be encouraged because the gospel is bigger than your circumstances. He's telling them that these things that are happening to them are bigger 
than the immediate. Take joy in your trials, he goes as far as to say, because God will use them to make your faith in Christ resilient and complete. That is solid stuff. But there's a part of me that can't help but say, what about those times in life where the circumstances before me are bigger than something that I can glean a lesson from? Maybe the opportunity to grow in maturity isn't outweighing the emotional cost it's weighing on me. Maybe I don't see that hope in sight, at least now. Maybe it's just pain. James doesn't dodge those questions either. At the end of his letter in chapter 5, he bookends with encouragement saying this, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. Wait patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. So what he's saying is you may not have the resolution in this life that you yearn for to your trials, but hold on, there's still hope because this life isn't all that there is. He's saying things are going to come around because Christ is going to come back and he's coming back soon. He will make all things right. He will make things new. So be patient, stand firm in faith. Christ is coming back. What a word of encouragement that was to these people in the midst of their circumstances. What encouragement these words are to us in the midst of our trials today. The gospel is bigger than our circumstances. Hold on in faith. And so the second intention of James' letter that I want to share with you right now that I feel like I absolutely have to cover is that he writes with words of insight on how these believers can authentically live out their lives of Christian faith. James writes with bold instruction because he detects a real problem in these people's conduct. Their outward lives are not lining up with their new life in Christ. And so here's where we really need to remember the context. These people are believers. They're free from the penalty of sin. No doubt about it. Their salvation is sealed in Christ's work on the cross. But James sees this troubling inconsistency in the way they're living. Though their sin no longer defines who they are before God, their conduct is often more representative of the old men they were in sin than the new men they are in Christ. And James says this isn't just harming their personal walks of faith. He's saying it's killing their fellowship with each other and it's killing their witness to the world. And James runs the gamut of topics and talking about how critical it is for them to seek resolution in these sin issues and areas of immaturity. He says they're showing favoritism. They're treating people more highly who they believe would be beneficial to them. He writes in chapter 2, Believers... And our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as law breakers. And so he's saying there is no place for favoritism in the church. People are valuable as created beings in the image of God himself. And so as God's redeemed, we ought to recognize their value as such and not in their status, not in their wealth. There's no place for favoritism in the gospel. And James calls it as it is. 
next he writes to them about faith and deeds. And this would have been an area of particularly of particular struggle for this congregation as Jews who used to be bound to the law. It was a real constant temptation for these people to take their newfound freedom from the law as a license for thoughtless living. To live with a license for freedom that harmed rather than to take their freedom as a catalyst for living lives of good works and love that reflected God's ultimate good work in Christ. Their attitude was one that we are saved by faith, so deeds really aren't that big of a deal anymore. That was their attitude and their actions reflected it. And James communicates his thoughts on this notoriously and painfully clearly. He says, faith without deeds is dead. Uh, so if you, if you haven't picked up on this already, subtlety just isn't James' strong suit. Uh, he says to them, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see, a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. And so what James is saying here is that it is incredibly important for them to see that faith does not replace deeds. Faith inevitably flows into deeds. This is no contradiction to Paul's teaching about justification by faith alone. It's a complement to what Paul teaches. James is simply saying that if a person has true faith, works are inseparably going to follow along. And so Interestingly enough, Paul actually discusses this dynamic himself. He says in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Deeds flow from faith. The two have to go together. And so James sees in his congregation this troubling inconsistency in their failure to live this truth out. He believes it's a reflection of what they've believed and acted upon based on this distorted view of the truth. And James cares for them enough to counsel them on it, even though those words must have been incredibly difficult for them to hear. Next, James writes to them about their speech. He says, The tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. We know this one's true. I love this comedian, this uh, quote by a comedian that I've shared with our connection students before. His name's Eric Idle, and he says, Sticks and stones may break my bones. But words will make me go in a corner and cry by myself for hours. <laughs> I identify with that one. Uh, I love it. Words are powerful, right? They make an impact for better or worse. They build up or tear down. James writes in chapter 3, Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a word of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. It sets the course for one's Life on fire, he writes. And so we'd better consider the power of our lives, the power of words in our lives, James is saying. They're an indicator of where our hearts are at, so they're this barometer. They set our trajectory. They're a GPS of sorts. They make an impact on the lives of the people around us. Words are a big deal. 
And so you can see in James' letter here, he covers so much ground in his instruction to these people. He goes on to write about their dysfunctional relationships. He says they're full of bitterness. They're full of envy, arrogance, selfishness. These are the reasons why they're quarreling. He writes about the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And, ah, oh, the book of James. Sometimes I can just read this book and feel so worn out. Uh, imagine how rough it must have been for the original recipients of this letter to receive it. And so here's a pastor who they haven't heard from from 10 years. And he writes to them with this heartfelt encouragement. And they're just warmed to the core. And then he lays this body slam of counsel down on them, almost crushing them. Part of me would have wanted to say, like, James, could you have not written us, like, two letters or maybe, like, five and just space this out a little bit? It's just so much all at once. And there are some weighty things in this letter. Early on in my college career, I attended a church where they had a Bible, um, not a Bible study, a Sunday school class for college students where we spent a semester going through the book of James, talking about these issues that are discussed here in the letter and how we can overcome them in our own lives. And if I'm being honest, I have to say that I quit going by the time we got chapter 3, which is the chapter where they talk about speech. And anyone who knows me well won't be surprised to hear that because I was so demoralized by the time we got to chapter 3, I was like, I better drop out because I know I'm not cleaning myself up on this one. Uh, the book of James can be hard to read. And if I'm being honest, the book of James can weigh me down oftentimes when I read it to this day. This is some tough stuff. The book of James can beat us up. I'm not sure there are any issues that he covers that I still don't struggle with in one way or another. James' letter is convicting, but it's also very helpful. It's full of wise and practical insight on Christian living. But we have got to be sure that we do not misunderstand the core of what this letter is really about. The book of James was never intended to be a simple list of instructions on how believers can get themselves together and be better Christians. His pastoral concern is not with modifying their behavior through good advice. It's with leading them to a deeper belief in Jesus Christ that their hearts and minds might be more deeply transformed by the good news. In James chapter 4, he gets to the core of what's been holding them back from being the people that God created them in Christ to be. And he says this, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And so James is saying, in essence, secrets out, guys. The way you're treating people with favoritism, the way you're living like faith and deeds have nothing to do with each other, the words you speak and the way you engage in community, these things are all a reflection of what's inside of you. Secret is out. They show what you truly love and what you value most at a heart level. And so remember again, these people are truly saved. But what James is saying is that though they are saved, their hearts remain torn between belief in God and love for these idols that are competing for their affection, their desires, fueled by love for another. Those things are harming their ability to fully receive Christ's love 
and in turn live a godly life out of thankfulness for what he's done. It's a desperate place that they're in. It's a desperate place, and this reality is ours too. Our hearts are torn between love for Christ and love for idols that tempt our affections but will never satisfy. Status, significance, independence, security, comfort, wealth. Um, I could name off my own shopping list for five more minutes. James continues on, but these people aren't without hope. They aren't without hope and neither are we. James says, do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Did you hear our hope in that? God jealously longs for his people's hearts to be conformed to his own by the power of his spirit at work inside of them. And so in the same way, James is saying that we are first saved by acknowledging our brokenness and turning to Christ in faith. So we must continually admit our sin and our need and look to Christ in faith throughout the journey of our lives as we pursue becoming more like him. We admit our need and God meets us not with a cold shoulder, but with the power of his spirit and more grace. I will take that swap. And this has huge implications for the way we approach our Christian lives. This means spiritual maturity is not about arriving. It's about admitting how far away we are and how deeply we are in need of more grace and asking God to give us more of himself if we're ever going to become more of the people he's created us in Christ to be. I love James' advice on how to grow in that last passage. You may not have caught it, and I didn't either the first time I read it, because it's so contrary to the way I think much of the time. Listen to James' advice on how to grow. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. How is that advice to grow? James says, because if you humble yourself before the Lord, he will lift you up. And folks, that is the gospel. That is the good news. When we admit our complete spiritual need and look to Christ in faith, we are met with new, full, and eternal life throughout our lives. We continue on this journey of faith and repentance, trusting in Christ's finished work with confidence because our salvation is secure. Make no doubt about it. But we have to be humble, absolutely dependent in the way that we view ourselves and our need for more grace because we know our heart motivations and desires twist inward. And so let me ask you, what is competing for your heart? What are the false saviors stealing your affections away from Christ? It's hard work, but will you join me in opening yourself up with humility to explore those questions? This is hard stuff, but praise God, he is with us in this. He gives us the gift of community to encourage each other in this process, to remind each other of the truth when we don't remember it for ourselves. And he gives us the ultimate gifts of his spirit and grace upon grace. And so let's together lay aside the idols that tempt our hearts 
with their poor impersonations of fulfillment. Let's seek after the living God, the one true place where meaning is found. And so as I conclude, I want to say to you, I I really hope you don't believe James is a straw epistle with nothing of an evangelic kind. The gospel is so central in this book. It impacts not only our eternal status, but everything about the way that we live in the here and now, both as individuals and as a community. And James absolutely nails that. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it encourages us and lifts us up. We thank you for the way that it divides our hearts. God, we know that you are the location of true hope. You are the location of true meaning and true life for eternity and in the here and now. God, we pray as people who are confident before you in Christ, but people who are humble, admitting our absolute need. We are desperate for you. We need your spirit at work in our lives to become the people who you've created us to be, people created in Christ for deeds of love and good works for our neighbors. God, we ask that you would meet us not um, with condemnation in our minds, but more grace, words of truth from who you are. We pray that you would impact us in our lives with more grace for our journey. And God, we pray that as we go from here, you would fill us up, that your word would continue to speak to us, that it would continue to convict us and continue to encourage us. And we pray these things together in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.